yeah, that, you know. that, that, that flows through the platform. Uh, we make a variable transaction fee based on how much volume the vendor uh, is doing through the platform. So that can range anywhere from five to 20%. And then also we, we charge a, a premium fee to vendors for some premium tools if they want to use them for like premium placement in the marketplace and uh, other scheduling tools and things of that sort. So while we don't disclose all of our revenue numbers, we do disclose like the GMV number, which right now is at 20 million. Welcome to another episode of Taking You to the Top. In this podcast, Rami spends time speaking with founders and CEOs from across the globe and asks them specific questions to learn exactly how they built and launched their businesses. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Are you ready to take it to the top? All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 80 of Taking You to the Top. My guest today is Brian Clayton. He's the CEO of GreenPal. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Rami, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. My pleasure. All right. Um, so, Brian, to get us started, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Something interesting about myself that most people don't know. I am the laziest hardest working person you will ever meet. Uh, you know, I, I, from the outside looking in, you know, I've built two businesses from scratch to over eight figures each. Uh, I'm a hustler. I work really hard, but I do all of that because secretly I love to be lazy. <laughs> I love to be all able right. to just do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. I love to be able to travel whenever I travel. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hardworking, lazy person. I mean, that is the best way I've ever heard it put but that's sort of the way that I function. I mean, I try to find ways to automate things so that I don't have to do it again. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, I think it's a Bill Gates quote. He says, when I, when I want something hard done, I find a lazy person because they'll find an easy way to do it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay. Um, so Brian, uh, could you tell us a bit about your background? What did you do before you started GreenPal? Yeah, so just for folks who don't know what GreenPal is, GreenPal is like the Uber for lawn mowing. So if you're a homeowner in the United States, you need to get your grass cut rather than calling all over town uh, and, and leaving voicemails. You can just download our app and somebody will come mow your grass the next day and you pay them right through the app. Before I started GreenPal, I actually, believe it or not, had a landscaping company, like a lawn maintenance company. I, I started mowing yards in high school as a way to make extra cash. And I just uh, stuck with this little lawn mowing business all through high school and all through college. And after I graduated college, I made a little business plan and decided to try to grow it into a large landscaping company. And over a 15-year period of time, I built that into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live. I got it to over 150 employees, over $10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, I was able to get the business acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. 
And so growing that business just for me and like a push mower to me and 150 people, I learned a lot the hard way uh, how to build a business. And, and I took some time off after I sold the first company and then I decided what now. And uh, the idea for Green Pal was one I had in the back of my head the, for, for, for a few years. And I thought, okay, well, let's make a go of this. And I kind of plowed everything I learned uh, from building the first landscaping business into building an app, which is basically the Uber for lawn, lawn mowing. So basically, this is a pure play SaaS model. It's a, well, what you would call it is like a SaaS enabled marketplace. And so uh, okay. the, the goal of the app is to connect buyers and sellers. And so uh, our job is to, for homeowners that sign up for the app, uh, they get five quotes back from lawn care services in their neighborhood, and they can read reviews uh, about the ones that, that give them a price and then hire the person they want to work for, work with. And then the lawn care service has a set of SaaS tools on their side that they use to operate their business on top of the marketplace. And so okay. things from Got like it. quoting to getting, getting hired, scheduling, getting paid, all of those things kind of happen automatically for them. Sure. And these, um, are you sort of setting a range or are you limiting how much um, a lawn mower? I'm not yeah, sure so, how to word so, it, but are you setting the yeah, pricing? Yeah. That's a great question. So when you have these marketplaces, um, they, they, they can be called uh, marketplace assigned, which basically is like Uber, which Uber sets the price and Uber assigns you a driver uh, and they kind of control all those dynamics of the marketplace. And then there's uh, there's marketplaces that are a little different, like marketplace assist, which is like Airbnb, which is here's the inventory in your neighborhood, in your area. Here's different uh, options, different, different types of uh, products and different prices and availabilities. And the marketplace enables you to get that job done, get, get that task done a lot quicker and easier. We're more like an Airbnb. We're marketplace assist. So the service providers that use our platform, they can set their own pricing. They set their availability. They, they quote the jobs that they want to work for and work work on and, and and so it's it's not it's not our role to assign the pricing uh of t in the marketplace but it's to make it run a lot more efficient and you know if you're not if you're if you're a lawn care service and you're trying to grow your business on top of green pal you have to be competitive with your pricing because you're just not going to be hired uh however it's not always uh, people don't always just hire the cheapest person that quotes a, a lot of times we're, we, we study in the data people don't necessarily hire the cheapest bid they get uh they look at things like uh, are they reliable? Do they show up on time? What, are, what do other people have to say about them? Uh, do, do the pictures of their, of their previous work history look nice and neat and is in line with what I want to hire as a consumer? So we, uh, we kind of make the whole thing run a lot smoother and easier, more efficient without really getting into the, the dynamics of saying, okay, this is, what it, this is what the going rate is. This is what you're going to pay. We let all of that kind of happen naturally and organically uh, in a marketplace. Sure. That, I mean, that makes complete sense. And just out of curiosity, where does the liability lie? Is it with you or is it with the lawn care provider? Like if something goes Great wrong. Question. So we are not, yeah, we are not the landscaping service that the homeowner hires. We're a marketplace that enables them to hire the landscaping service they want to work with. So all the liability in terms of something going wrong or damage or whatever uh, is, is 
put on the back of the individual owner of the business that they that they hire. And so while we do have some checks in places uh, where where we make sure that vendors have insurance, things of that sort, ultimately um, it's it's kind of like if you find a, a restaurant on Yelp. Uh, or TripAdvisor, and you slip and fall in that restaurant, you don't sue TripAdvisor, you sue the restaurant. The liability kind of shakes out the same way. And so, uh, and so service providers uh, carry their own insurance, and if something goes wrong, uh, that, it, that's handled the same as it, it, on our platform as it is in the real world, in the, in the organic world. All right. I mean, the, the only reason I'm asking is, if I'm not mistaken, Airbnb themselves you know, sort of, I think they have like a million, million dollar warranty if, you know, there's on damages to property. Yeah. Well, what they don't tell you is that rides on the back of the homeowner's insurance policy. And so, and so <laughs> okay. like, if you have to file a claim, <laughs> if you have to file a claim, uh, in the de- in the details and the wording on that insurance is okay. is that uh, you file a claim the first thing the, the the homeowner's insurance policy kicks in first and then that rides on top of it, um, and so we have toyed with the notion of of that of those sorts of things, but knock on wood, luckily, in eight years of running the platform, uh, millions of transactions we haven't had literally not have had one incident. Um, and, and, you know, the, the service providers themselves carry their own insurance. And so we let that, we let that happen the same on our platform as it does in, in, in the, uh, the, the, the regular, uh, sense. Okay. Got it. And, and so you mentioned, uh, you started the company eight years ago, so that's 2013. That's right. Yeah. We are the definition of an eight year overnight success. <laughs> okay. And what does team size look like today? Yeah, so we started off just me and my two co-founders and uh, kind of hacked t- together the first version ourselves and worked on the product ourselves uh, for a very, very long time. And then probably year two or three, we were able to hire our first uh, dedicated developer, uh, and that that made made life a little easier. And then as time went on, we grew uh, as as revenues would afford us to grow. We have funded this business off of its own revenues, uh, funded it off of its own cash flow, and so. And so little by little, we've grown the team very slowly. We're 23, 23 people now, uh, and we're, we're, we're fully remote. We're doing uh, $20 million a year in revenue through the platform, and over you know two 300,000 people use the app to get their lawn mode. Fantastic. And you mentioned you have two co-founders. Uh, when, when you started the company, did you just make it a clean 33% split? How, did, how, how was that? Discussion? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we did. Uh, I, I really was just optimizing for two co-founders that were just hungry and wanted to make something of themselves in life. And like the business could be our, our vehicle to do that. And I, <laughs> the thing is like, none of us knew how to build software. None of us knew how to design software. We had to like kind of teach ourselves these things as we right. went. And so, uh, yeah, I recruited two co-founders. We split the business up three ways. I think one of us has a little bit more equity than the others to, to, to break a tiebreaker. But other than that, it's, it's pretty much uh, evenly distributed. And we haven't raised any funding, so we have a really clean cap table. It's, and it makes things makes life a lot easier. You know, a lot of, a lot of my friends and, and, uh, and, and colleagues that have started similar businesses raised a bunch of money from a bunch of different investors, and they're in year six or seven, and they got a messy cap table. And sure. you know, if they try to sell the business, all of this weird stuff happens. And and uh, look, we're very lucky; we have a real clean cap table, and we we own the whole business ourselves. Um, 
So the, because I was just uh, reading through your site and doing a bit of research, the initial seed funding, was that uh, an investment from the co-founders and yourself? There's a That's right. Yeah, we, we pulled, we, yeah, we pulled our own cash together and, and it wasn't like I, uh, I, I plowed the proceeds from my first business into my second, you know, my building, my first business was, was really tough. Uh, it was very much me doing physical labor for many years. And it was very difficult running that, that type of business. It's very, it's very hand-to-hand combat. And I knew when I sold it, I did not ever want to pull weeds again. I never wanted to run a lawnmower again in my life. So I, I took all the proceeds and invested it in very illiquid assets. And so I didn't really didn't have the, I really, really did not have the luxury to plow any proceeds back into the second company. And that, and that was done by design. And so like we raised 250 grand across ourselves, um, loans from family, uh, credit cards, liquidated 401ks, you name it. But we got that cash together across ourselves. And that's really all we needed to get the first version going. And then we started making a little bit of money and we would reinvest that to make some more money and rinse and repeat. Do, did that for darn near a decade. And now we have a, a nice profitable business. Fantastic. So I'm going to classify that as bootstrapped for sure. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're an eight-year overnight success bootstrap business. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't recommend that all entrepreneurs take this path, but it certainly is one that that uh, if you just stick it out and don't give up, you can be successful. Absolutely. And um, of the $20 million annually, that's, that's the amount flowing through the platform. But how, how much of that is your cut? Yeah. I'm so being that's very how direct, much... but it would be interesting. Yeah, that, to know. That, that, that flows through the platform. Uh, we make a variable transaction fee based on how much volume the vendor uh, is doing through the platform. So that can range anywhere from five to 20%. And then also we, we charge a, a premium fee to vendors for some premium tools if they want to use them for like premium placement in the marketplace and uh, other scheduling tools and things of that sort. So while we don't disclose all of our revenue numbers, we do disclose like the GMV number, which right now is at 20 million. And, and we've actually been doubling that year over year. We're actually slated to double this year and in, in coming out of the COVID. Incredible. I mean, how, how has COVID impacted the business? We thought this time last year, it was going to be really, really rough. And we were kind of braced for like half the revenue. And it didn't happen that way for us. What, what we found was a lot of companies like Uber Eats, Instacart, DoorDash, Postmates, uh, and, you know, Deliveroo um, were having banner years. Like they, they were like crushing it. And, and we started seeing that for ourselves. We were trying to, we were, we were starting to ride this wave of contactless ordering for, for things that you get done. Sure. And uh, so it, it kind of helped us in a, in a sense that that it, it accelerated the notion that consumers can get things done through a mobile app on their phone um, and not have to do it the old way anymore. Because really, our, our biggest competitor is the status quo, is people just picking up the phone, leaving voicemails, sending emails, sending the text messages. A lot of times they don't get responded back to. And like, that's the status quo. And that's really what we're competing against. And COVID kind of accelerated a user adoption for a new way of doing things because people had to order their food, had to, you know, didn't want to go to the grocery store, had to order somebody to come deliver their groceries. And and we kind of rode the wave with that and still are. And so, 
it kind of helped our business. My heart goes out to businesses that were in the crosshairs of COVID, you know, if you were in like events or, or uh, entertainment or restaurant, but for us, luckily it helped us. And I think uh, also the fact that people for a period of time were sort of locked down and I think they have more time to focus on how neat the lawn looks like today, you know? Yeah. You know, spending more time at home uh, and, and really there is a trend of, of, homeowners investing more back into their home because they're spending more time there and they're, and, and, you know, if a lot of this work from home stuff stay sticks, you know, like not your home, your home is also your workplace and your office. And so we're, we're seeing a little bit of that as well. People investing more into their homes maintenance in terms of keeping the landscaping clean and trimmed and pruned nice and fertilizing and things of that sort. Whereas they may not have done that before, because they just weren't there during the daylight hours as much. So there's some trends that have happened out of COVID that have actually helped us. And those are definitely two of them. All right. And Brian, would you ever consider selling the company? Does that cross your mind? You know, we've had some, uh, some, some acquisition offers over the years and, you know, never say never, but right now it's, it's just now gotten to be fun uh, we've been at this eight years and it's only been in the last two or three that we've been able to get really, really talented, smart people on the team with us. Sure. And, and when you're working in a company that, that you founded and there's literally people working there that are smarter than you are, that's a lot of fun. And, and so like we're, we're picking up momentum. We're starting to see some compounding of, of bigger numbers. And so it's like, now it's like, why would I want to sell it when we're making good money and, and, and it's actually, it's actually fun running it. And there, I'll be honest with you, the first few years were not fun. They were excruciating. They were really <laughs> tough. It was a slog. But, uh, but now it is fun. So we, uh, you know, we've got a long, long, long way to go. We're, we're, we're only scratching the surface in terms of how, much, how big this industry is. And in the United States alone, it's a $99 billion industry. And we're just a, tall, a small, tiny fraction of that. And so we're going to keep going probably for the next 10 years plus. And unless something changes, we're not really actively looking for acquires. Incredible. I had no idea it was that big of an industry. I didn't, I, you know, I've been in the industry my entire life and it wasn't until I started GreenPal and I started doing market research that I not know that either. Yeah. And it's an, in, in the United States, it's a $99 billion industry and the top 10 players in the business only constitute one, like 2 billion of that. So the top 10 uh, major like companies in the space constitute, you know, like literally 2%. And so, and so it's uh, it's highly fragmented. It's it's comprised of really really small operators, and, and it's our marketplace's job to kind of organize that and and surface the good ones and and promote the good ones, and uh, and help them grow their business on top of our technology, and really kind of just eating our way through that is 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 what we've spent eight years doing, and we're going to continue to chew our way through it. Perfect. All right, um, Brian. This next section it's to do with marketing. Um, what type of marketing has been most effective for you, either free or paid? Yeah, yeah. So when, you, when you're starting a tech company from scratch, you know, you have to innovate on like a problem solution. You have to innovate on delivering some sort of experience that doesn't exist. And you have to, you have to innovate in that arena. But uh, I think what a lot of folks, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, overlook is you have to innovate on growth too. You have to innovate on some sort of distribution, some sort of marketing, some sort of growth in order to get 
uh, liquidity in order to get adoption for your new product. And so for us, we very early on tested and experimented in every way we could to try to market the platform to, to buyers and sellers. And we found out really quick that we were kind of demand constrained, that we needed as many homeowners as we could to, to use the platform. And that was where we were constrained. And so we tried everything. You know, we tried Facebook ads, Google ads, Twitter ads, Instagram ads, Pinterest mm -hmm. ads, you name it. And we experimented until we really found that we could put, we could put more money into organic search, like just organic local SEO and get get more back than we could any other channel and here we are eight years later that's still the case and so while while competing in organic seo evolves on a on a really a, a quarterly basis if not even faster you uh if you throw all your weight into it and really do the things you need to do to compete in it it, it can be a, a long uh a long defensible way to to build sustainable acquisition for for your user base and so that's what we are we discovered early on and we've just stuck with it ever since so half of our users find us through just good old organic search you know somebody wanting a lawn care service nearby me they type that in and, and we're among the the options that a homeowner can consider and in some places we we dominate in some places we lag but day, every day we work to compete in that one channel and i think a lot of startups really just need to focus on one channel and just do everything they can do to win at that one channel because the odds of being good at several different things at once particularly when you're a, a bootstrap startup are, are pretty slim absolutely and i think the fact that you chose to go the organic route it's more long term and uh, i would assume safer you know things things tend to break when you're paying for them like uh you know when you're competing for the Google top spot, you know, something could just go wrong tomorrow and you've lost everything. We've seen that happen to a lot of competitors. Um, and it, in our, in our exact space and also in kind of, uh, in kind of adjacent spaces where, where they will start a company and do really well in one, one paid channel. And then that, channel like really changes so this happened in facebook and around 2012 13 14 15 like the cost per acquisition in facebook like tripled over that period of time just because it got super super competitive and the channel kind of collapsed and so there were many businesses that were able to uh like prove out with a, a million dollars of investor funding like look we can get all these customers and we just need to pour more gas on this fire and just sure. pour more money into this thing and they did and and then it didn't play out and they raised like a 20 30 million dollar round of funding and it just, it just went to zero and uh i think i read a study somewhere once where like something like 80 percent of all venture dollars go right back to google facebook and amazon <laughs> and and so it's like it's funny it's it's uh it's a, it's a it's a crazy thing and when it works it, it's beautiful but most of the time it doesn't and so to your point yeah like like paid channels can be an accelerator of something that's already organically working sure but there's very rare cases of somebody going from zero to one and in, in paid channels and and making that work like there's some companies that do like like you know wish.com those guys are insanely good at at paid um but it's very rare that you see a company go from from scratch to product market fit 
to breaking out and they did it all on the back of paid channels. You don't see that very often. Usually it's, there's organic SEO or some, some kind of referral hook that, that is making it run. And then the paid is kind of sprinkling on top. Right. Okay. And um, did you also get your first non-referred customer organically? Yeah. So, so that's exactly how it happened. When we, when we first started, we, we really just focused on one market until we could figure it out. We, we, you know, we, we just operated in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live and, and we were able to compete in local SEO just because we were in that one market. So you got, you got three co-founders were throwing all of our weight into ranking in ranking for keywords in one market. And we were able to do that. And so then we started seeing, okay, yeah, we can create liquidity in this one market uh, just through organic search. I wonder if we can do this in other geos as well. And so we started experimenting with that. We launched our second market and our third and fourth. And we ro- we created like a little playbook where we know if we launch a brand new market from scratch, we do these 20 things. And after six months, we'll start ranking for, you know, the, the 20 keywords that mattered for us. And that's how we would get uh, consumers onto the platform. And then at the same time, we would go out and recruit uh, suppliers, vendors, and we would do that more through a manual process. But once we got them on board, um, it didn't, you know, we didn't have to keep doing that. We only needed a certain number of those. And then those would kind of organically grow by themselves. But the, but the consumer side, like we just threw all of our weight into local SEO, learned that really early and created a little repeatable playbook on how, on how to do that city by city throughout the United States. Now we're in every, every market, every market in the United States, but we, it didn't start that way. I mean, I, I've seen the amount of areas you're in is incredible. And I'm, I'm really interested in this playbook. Are you sharing that playbook with anybody or is that a internal secret sauce? I, you know, there's one thing about SEO, there's very few secrets. And so right. it's not like any person has a silver bullet and, and they know it. And nobody else does, you know, it, for us um, at a high level, what, what we do when we go to a new city is we'll recruit 20 or 30 service providers in that city. And then we will create the best content about those service providers that exist. We'll write little bio biographies about them, take pictures of their stuff, um, you know, talk about what makes their business unique and different in their little marketplace. And then we create these little local landing pages around mm-hmm. um, about those businesses. And so that's good local organic content. There's no way to like scale it. There's no algorithm to do that. It's just, you have to have, you have to like really just do that by hand and curate it. And then um, after we do that, we go out, we reach out to local PR. So all of like the news channels, the newspapers, all of that, all of those uh, local journalists will, will do the hard work of, of reaching out to them and telling them, Hey, we're, we're launching this product in your city in Wichita, Kansas. And, and uh, we're going to be live next month. And here's some service providers who are going to be uh, adopting the product. You can hire them, you know, in a snap. And, and so then we'll get coverage on, on, uh, on the, the TV stations, on the newspapers and, and we'll get backlinks. And, and so all of these things kind of reinforce themselves um, to where then those, those pages will rank when somebody's searching for a lawn mowing service sure. in Wichita, Kansas. And, and so that's like at a high level, like between content and backlinks and PR and, uh, and, and localization, you know, if you do all these things right together uh, and you do it long enough, you, your, your website builds up the authority to where you can then compete, but it's still very much a long game. It's, and that's why you, 
a lot of a lot of startups don't do SEO because it's not predictable. You can't like do X, Y, and Z and get results next month. It very much takes a year or two to get get the snowball rolling. Sure. I mean, are you are you going into the detail of, for example, H1 tags, H2 tags, like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That stuff's table stakes. Like all of the on on page SEO in terms of marking up your content to where you can kind of uh, communicate to Google what this page is about. And so like that technical SEO piece of it, absolutely. Like anybody that, you know, anybody that's got a website should be doing that stuff anyway. Um, and so, so like if you had to like divide SEO into a few buckets, one would be the on-page technical stuff. It does the page load fast. Is it marked up properly? Like what you were just talking about? Does it have, uh, does it have, all of the things that Google is looking for. So Google understands what it's, what it, what it, what the page is about. And then another bucket would be like maybe another 30% would be backlinks. Like do, do authoritative websites and, and content creators and news outlets mention this website or this web page. And then uh, the other third would be like, what kind of content are we talking about here? Is the content quality? Is it original? Is it well-written? Is it informative? Does it help people with, with what they call fulfilling the query, which is like, if they're searching for the thing, does it, does it actually answer the question? That? Yeah. Answer the question, which is a very simple thing, but that's something that Google understands now more than ever. Is like, if you're searching for a lawn care service in Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. and you come to green pal and you don't go back to the search engine ever again to search for that, Google understands that that's a good a match. So let's promote that. If they do go back and do what's called pogo sticking, if they do go back and keep searching, Google understands, oh, this may not be that great. Let's demote it. And so that's a very simplistic uh, characterization of how Google kind of understands what the rank and whatnot. But that's one of 200 ways that they that they understand what's good and what, what isn't. And so, like, if you're willing to, like, compete in that and do the things you got to do in, in, in organic search over a a, a one-year, two, three, four-year period of time, you can compete in it, and you can you can develop a good source of of acquisition for for new customers. Perfect. I mean, the way you explained it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I, I just want to go back to the press part for a second because I'm in the U.S. It may be a bit easier to reach out to press, but are you using like a specific service for this? We have figured out every which way we could to outsource, delegate, automate, uh-huh. just just do whatever we could to, to, to do PR better. And we haven't found anything that works. The only thing that works is somebody on our team and, and for many years and still is our my co-founder mm-hmm. emails 100 journalists a day and just pitches them on the idea of, Hey, Green Pal is is operating your market. Here's a story about a lawn care service in your market that that uh, has doubled his business. You know, would you like to cover it? You know, and here's pictures of of this person and and like just creating these stories and like pitching them to journalists via email is the only thing we have found that works. And for every hundred you pitch, you get one. And uh, and, and 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 so for us, and and then on top of that, we go to the market to, for the PR story. So. My co-founder is, you know, pr- before COVID was on TV 70 times in a year. And he was always on the road, always in a different city, uh, going on TV, doing a spot and and getting that story to, to, to be crafted in the local market. And then the online component to it as well. 
and getting the 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 backlink and and all of the the brand rec- uh, references on the online piece is just as important. Like so, just doing that over and over and over again and doing it for many years is what's gotten us, you know, the momentum that that we now have, which we're able to generate the traffic we need at a local level to to tee it up for the vendors that use our platform. Got it. All right, um, and Brian, you mentioned earlier. Um, that you do podcasts on a regular basis. How effective do you see podcasts as a customer acquisition channel? You know, um, as a direct thing that you can do to grow sales, it, there, I cannot correlate. Uh, you know, if I do X number of podcasts, we grow sales by, by X percent. There is no direct connection. Um, sure. For me, you know, the doing, doing podcast interviews, like 90% of the reason I do them it's just, it's just because I have like a personal belief system of like to live a, a, a to be in, in a mode of expansion, to be expressing um, my thoughts and ideas on how to build businesses and my strategies on how to build startups. And I feel like that's just good business for myself personally. Like I believe you're either expanding or you're contracting and you're either in one of those two states in life. And so podcasting is one of these natural things that I do do that keeps me in a, in a point of expansion. I'm always uh, needing to stay sharp, be on my A game. Um, I'm always needing to read books and listen to other podcasts and watch conferences on, on YouTube and whatnot, just to keep fresh and to learn new things. So podcasting is like a, is like a forcing function for me personally. That's 99% of the reason why I do it. And then the other 1% might be that green pal gets some good PR. Maybe green pal gets a backlink out of it. Um, but, but I've, I've probably been on 200 podcasts and, and I haven't seen any direct correlation between podcasts and growth and sales before or after, but I do enjoy doing it. And, I, and it's made me a, a, a better entrepreneur. Absolutely. And I mean, the big issue with the podcasting world that I'm seeing at least is it's almost impossible to track. I mean, if somebody says I get X amount of exposure, well, can you really prove it? Yeah, I agree. It's, 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 it's really in the, in the camp of, I mean, if you wanted to treat it as marketing, you would really have to place it in the camp of brand marketing. And, and, uh, you know, even then, you know, you can still track some brand marketing, you know, podcasting is really just one of those things. It's like good. It's just a good thing you should do for yourself personally and, and for your business. If you, if you do it for five years, 10 years, it may, you may see some results, but, uh, in terms of like connecting the dots of, okay, here's my ROI for what I spend on podcasting. I haven't been able to close that. Maybe some people have, but I haven't. Okay. Um, Brian, this next uh, section here is one of my favorite sections. And it's if you were to start from scratch today and the only thing you had was a website hosting package, what would you do? What business would you launch other than the one that you currently have? Yeah, my, I was going to say I would just do the exact business I'm in now because because <laughs> it's taken me eight years to get to where I am today. I could do it all probably in six months uh, <laughs> if I had to start over again, knowing sure. what I know. Um, so if I can't do Green Pal, the Uber for lawn mowing, I would probably I would I would definitely stay in I would definitely stay in some sort of SaaS or SaaS enabled marketplace because I think we're in day minute one of day one of of what what that looks like. So I would probably create some sort of SaaS product 
uh, or maybe even a marketplace. And I would probably stay in the services industry because that's what I know. I know, like I know how small business owners think. And I, and I also kind of have an intuitive awareness of how consumers think. And so I would probably stick with, with, with some sort of marketplace uh, for enabling people to hire uh, services. Like you push a button on your phone, something happens in the real world. I would stay in that, in that arena. And I might even like, I might even like do like home cleaning or something like that. And I, and, and I, and I may not even make a marketplace. I might just make the best software tool that maids can use to run their business or something like that, because I'm pretty sure I could be successful at that. So I would, I would stay really close to what I know. And I I think that can help an entrepreneur when you're starting from scratch. It's like solve your own problem. Um, You know, pivot uh, out of, out of what you already know into the next thing. It's really, really, really difficult to innovate in a space that you don't have any experience in. Absolutely. I mean, are, are you uh, like a coder yourself? I had to, I had my two co-founders and I had to learn how to code to build the first version. Uh, we, we tried to outsource the first version out the gate and it was a total disaster. We wasted over a hundred thousand dollars doing that. And then we realized that we had to learn how to build software if we wanted to be in a tech, 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 tech business. And so uh, it took like two years, but we taught ourselves how to code. I, I my co-founder went to a boot camp to learn backend programming, and I learned how to be a really, really, really terrible front-end engineer. <laughs> and that got us by for for several years until we could then, you know, delegate. We could then begin to delegate to to, to developers who are much, much better at this stuff than we are. But we we had a we we had a position of which we could we could delegate through stewardship. We knew how to do this stuff. We know how to do this stuff. We know how to build the product. We just need somebody to help us do it. Versus when we first started, we didn't know how to do any of this stuff, and so we delegated from a standpoint of like abdication. It's like, oh, I don't know how to do this. You do it, and that's a recipe for disaster. Like you got to have some sort of some sort of mastery of the things that you're trying to delegate before you can then delegate them. I agree, hundred percent, and. What's your take on, you know, no code or low code platforms these days? Do you think, I mean, they're, they're useful for someone to start off with? Oh man, they're all the rave right now. And I, personally, I don't get it. I mean, every, every thing that I see that comes out of these, these platforms looks like crap um, yeah. and doesn't do what it needs to do. So I personally don't get it. Now that doesn't mean that this stuff could change the world, but this entrepreneur's opinion, I, I think it's almost does a disservice because you really, I mean, I think they're, they can be good to validate an idea. Sure. So let's say you wanted to start, let's say you wanted to start the Uber for home cleaning and you really wanted to validate that idea. You can maybe possibly go on one of these low code platforms and and hack together something and and try to get a proof of concept but at some point you're going to have to like build your own technology like you 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 cannot rely on a third party like module set of modules to build and invent brand new products you just can't and 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 then the argument is like oh but you can customize these things and you can get a developer involved and customize them and well, then you might as well just build it yourself. Like by the time you like, by the time you customize the hell out of it and like try to back into what you need it to do, yeah. you literally have spent just as much time if you just rolled it out yourself. And, and I get there's like 
like there's like five things that every every uh, entrepreneur and developer has to do to get started and like these things can help you to avoid those five things I get that and maybe it's helpful there at that at that layer but I think it can do more of a disservice in terms of seducing entrepreneurs who don't have any technical expertise into thinking that they can be a tech entrepreneur just because they can use one of these low code things I think it's doing a disservice but that's just today, you know, in 2021, fast forward five, 10 years from now, maybe you can say, hey, hey, uh, uh, Bubble, I, I want, you know, just build me the, the best uh, DoorDash competitor you, you can. And voila, you got DoorDash. I, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like maybe. Um, but, but the other thing, too, is it's like a lot of times – when you're building these things from scratch, you're like, you're building growth into them too. Like you're, you're, you're figuring out ways to leverage that product and customizing it to us, to something so unique to grow it that I don't, I don't see low code or no code doing that, but I could be wrong. That's just my opinion. All right. Um, well, usually what happens in podcasts is we talk about the successes but I also really like to know, is there something that you're currently struggling with? You wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, shit, I got to um, do this. You know, it's it's like uh, there's never been any, luckily in this business, Yeah, there has never been any moments on either side of the spectrum where it's like, oh, oh we're just breaking out. We're crushing it. We grew 10x this month. Mm -hmm. So there's never been any huge swings up and there's never been any huge swings down. So it's like, it's always just been a relentless, like 20 mile March uh, up and to the right, small 1%, 2% gains um, to like, to, to use like chess as an analogy. Like there's no one move on the chessboard that wins the game. It's like a slow buildup. And so it's, that, it's, it's for us, it's been that way up. And it's always that way down. Like if we ever go down, it's, it's incremental. So there's never been any like one big thing that has kept me up at night. Um, so I guess I'm very lucky in that regard. Now, there's always a hundred things that irritate you. Like sure. there's always a hundred things that you're working on and you, and your developers are working on and you're trying to extinguish and, and you're trying to make better and better. And, and so it's like, it, it's, it is literally never ending. And that's one reason why I'm so skeptical of the no code thing you know, I'm sitting here looking at a product roadmap that has a hundred different things that we want to do. And it's so custom and so unique to, to what it is we do. Like, I mean, it, the only way to build these things is just, is just to build them. And so um, it's always like, a, it's always a hundred things you have, to, you have to like prioritize what the five that you can work on at any given time. And so those things are challenging, but they don't keep me up at night. All right. Got it. All right. Uh, so, Brian, where, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody listening to this and, he, and lives in the United States, uh, Green Pal in the App Store or Play Store, uh, you get hooked up with a great lawn mowing service in less than a minute. Uh, life's too short to cut your own grass. That's for damn sure. Um, anybody that wants to get at me, I've been hanging out on LinkedIn a lot lately. So just shoot me a connection on LinkedIn and shoot me a message there. Got it. All right, uh, Brian, are you ready to wrap up with the Famous Five? Let's do it. All right, number one, what's your favorite business book? Favorite business book? That's a tough question because there's so <laughs> many. Um, exactly. 
Hmm. You know, I love for its simplicity, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. I think even though that business is about, that book is about traditional business, like the, it's literally about a, a, a lady trying to make a pie shop. I think mm-hmm. it's just so fundamental to how you think about working on your business. And and the main thing about that book is working on your business and not in your business. So the E-Myth, that's t- like everybody has to read that. Absolutely. Okay. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Several. Uh, everybody always asks me, um, how do you like, I need a mentor. Like, how do I find a mentor? Somebody needs to mentor <laughs> me. And like, I'm like, you know, I mean, just get on YouTube and you can be mentored by a bunch of different people who you don't have access to. And that's been the case for me. Like I had to like go from a blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur. And so I was I had to go get mentors who don't even know me, but I have followed everything they have ever written and put out. And, uh, you know, those are, those evolve as, as time goes on, but like, well, like a mentor of mine for a very long time that, that I never have met is Travis Kalanick, the CEO of, uh, of Uber, you know, I mean, what an amazing guy to learn from in terms of, of just defying logic, defying gravity and just, and it's being relentless with growing your business and aggressive. Like I, I, I love that about him. Uh, there's another guy, Jason Calacanis, on uh, who mm-hmm. has a podcast called This Week in Startups. I've, yeah. I have watched his, every show of his last ten years. So those are those are guys that you know, and that's just two of a hundred. Um, and then and then going deeper, like there's there's practitioners of the things that you're trying to do. Um, like for me, SEO is a big one. And so there's a guy by the name of Casey Winters, who is one of the first growth people at Grubhub. And mm-hmm. he talks a lot about using SEO to get your business going. And so there's even long tail, there's, there's practitioners of things that, that have done what it is I'm trying to learn how to do. And so like YouTube, man, a mentor in a box. Absolutely. All right. Uh, number three, what's your favorite online tool for growing your business? Oh man, there's so many. And like, where do you even start? Um, I love Trello. I know, I know project, pro, project management is, is like, there's all kinds of fancy tools. And for me, I like to keep it simple. Uh, Trello uh, at any given time, I'll have 10 different Trello boards open for different things in our team, you know, whether it be uh, AB testing, uh, you know, content creation, um, bugs that we're tracking, sprints that are coming up for new features. Mm-hmm. Got it. All that stuff. I'm we you know, tracked out of Trello and and still do. And, and we manage 23 people all through all through Trello. Um, outside of that, for A/B testing, I love uh, Google Optimize. For, and for most businesses, it's free, and it's just a great way to A/B test to figure out like copy that works and copy that doesn't work. Um, I love Upwork. Upwork.com is a great online tool. It's a marketplace for connecting you with freelancers. You need to grow your business. I could go on and on and on. All right. Number four, uh, what's something you wish you knew when you were 20? I wish I knew the power of delegation and how to delegate the right way and, and how to, and how to weed out people who just aren't good fits for your team and how to, and how to figure out the ones that are like, that's something that you just naturally learn over a decade or two of entrepreneurship. I have, I have been stuck for years in, in 20 years of business because I didn't delegate quick enough. So I would really, really look at like, and that's why I like the book, the E-Myth a lot is because that book kind of walks you through uh, how to think about building systems and processes in your business and, and how to delegate roles out. And so I wish I like just came out the gate knowing the things that I know today 
Uh, I don't, but I don't know, like you can shortcut and you can learn quicker. You can certainly learn quicker than I did, but that's something I would like if I could go back to 1999 with a three by five, uh, diskette, I would, <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> All right. And the last question, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? I have to get, I got it. You know, I got to get eight or nine. Like I, <laughs> I just have to. I don't understand how people live on like four or five hours of sleep. Wish I could do it. I've tried to do it. Uh, I just can't do it. Now, I do do something that forces me to get my butt out of bed at like 6 a.m. every morning. Like I, I make a commitment to be somewhere for some kind of fitness routine. So it could be like a, uh, it could be like a group fitness class. It could be I have made a promise to be somewhere to do yoga or I have promised to do boxing with somebody at 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. and that gets my it gets me out of bed but but to make that happen i mean i have got to be in bed by 9 30 uh or else i'm just not worth anything the next day so that's just me personally i think i think one thing like you know you listen to all these things like oh you gotta like get up at four in the morning and you know work till two o'clock and i mean i think you can go hard like that for weeks or months but i think to run the marathon you got to get good sleep and and you have to take care of your vessel and and if not you're not going to make it because it really is a marathon it's not a sprint sure and are you doing any specific tracking of your sleep or you just know I that tried, you need to get Right, right. I have tried all that stuff to, to, to like the quantified self kick. I, I really got on that for a while. And mm -hmm. like, and, and so I would use all like, you know, the, uh, the ring or, 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 or the watches or the wristbands or whatever, what have you. And it's like, uh, yeah, you, you got five hours of sleep and you feel like crap today. Duh. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I, I have not been able to find, like, I haven't been able to find a way to hack it. Like, I just know, like, I need to be in bed at nine 30 or 10 o'clock. And I need to be out of bed by six. Yeah. Because if I get now, if, if I get out of bed at eight, if I sleep too much, then, it, then it's, then again, I feel like crap. So it's sure. like 10 hours is too much. It's just eight, and that, that's what's works for me. But like, I have, I have a buddy that he, he goes to bed at one o'clock in the morning and gets up at, at six and he feels fine. So I, I think it's different for everybody. Sure. Sure. I mean, Brian, it's been incredible. An absolute pleasure talking with you today. And I hope that, you know, we could have a follow-up call just to see uh, the new things that you're doing. That would be great. Absolutely, Rami. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Have a good one. You too. As a valued listener of the Taking You to the Top podcast, you're in good company. It has also been said that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That being said, by subscribing to this podcast, you'll spend your time with Rami and a collection of the world's brightest thinkers and founders. All you have to do now is to push the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform, and you'll be consistently learning from the very best. Thanks for watching today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on any of the available podcast platforms so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. If you have an extra minute, leaving a review would help us grow.